Our Old Testament lesson is found in 1 Kings chapter 21. We are reading this morning verses 1 through 24. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And set two worthless men opposite him. And let them bring a charge against him saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it was written in the letters that they had sent to them. And they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people, and the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. And then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. And Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. 
And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. This is the word of the Lord. That was unenthusiastic. And I know it's really intense, so I'm going to let you off. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word and we confess that it is only in your light that we see light. You are the one who holds all truth. Your throne is a throne built upon righteousness and justice. These are the foundations upon which you reign. And we come to terrible things today. Threats of judgment, injustice. And God, we need your help. And so we ask that you would send out your light. We ask that you would send out your truth, that you would lead us to your holy hill, that we hear your very voice. We ask that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. As you read 1 Kings 21, there really is only one question that comes to mind. Where is God? As Naboth is falsely accused and as he's then subsequently executed for crimes he didn't commit, the question comes to mind, why is God so silent? Why is he simply standing by as Naboth meets his demise? Why does he, the God whose throne, as we read in the Psalms, is founded upon justice and righteousness. Why doesn't he come to this Israelite's aid? Why doesn't God intervene as an idolater, Ahab, who worships the god Baal alongside of Yahweh? But why doesn't God intervene as he takes advantage of this simple man, a faithful Israelite named Naboth? Why does he not step in to stop such injustice and corruption? It's this set of questions that animated some of the most creative minds of the 21st of the 20th century. Authors like Russian novelist Dostoevsky, French philosopher Albert Camus, Jewish Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel. All exploring this question of why God is so silent in the face of injustice. They seek solutions, they find very different answers in their own ways. But the question is there, echoing down through history, reverberating throughout the past century. Where is God in the face of injustice? Why is he so silent? And our entire narrative tracing the reign of Ahab from the very end of chapter 16 when he takes up his reign all the way here into chapter 21 where he illegally takes possession of this man's property, throws us into this enormous theological quandary. The tension is that Ahab's evil surpasses that of all of his predecessors. This is summarized for us in chapter 16 and verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. 
And then it's emphasized again in chapter 21 and verse 25. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. It's emphasized for us that this man was incredibly wicked before God. He forged alliances with foreign powers. He did so by taking a wife who was devoted to the god Baal, the god of the storm, the god who brought the rains, and also to Baal's consort, Asherah. He continued the sins of Jeroboam as worshiping before the golden calves that were to represent the God of Israel. He built a shrine for Baal near his own palace, and he persecuted God's prophets at the, at the request of his wife. But despite all of this, despite all of the wrong that he had done, Ahab continues to rule. In fact, as we read the entire story, we find that not only does he rule for 22 years, but in many ways Ahab prospers. In 1 Kings 20, Ahab has success in battle against the great kings of Syria. 32 of them arrayed against him, and not, does he have, not only does he have success once, he has success twice. And then in chapter 21, his wife, Jezebel, conspires against a faithful Israelite, has him executed so that Ahab can take up a piece of real estate that Naboth had refused to sell to him. Ahab is wicked, but he carries on from strength to strength. And so the question comes to us once again, why does God allow this man, who did more evil than any other Israelite king, to continue enjoying prosperity and success? And why does God seem to sit idly by as this faithful Israelite man, Naboth, lies dead beneath a pile of stones heaped on him by a stack of lies? And friends, this is the sad reality in our world. And it's not confined to events then and there. Things that happened recorded for us in 1 Kings 21. This same dynamic is alive today, here and now, thriving in the very world in which we live in. The questions still echo. They echo down through the ages. They come through the 20th century and all the massive injustice and all the violence of the last century continues down through today. People asking the question, where is God? Where is he in the face of injustice? Why is he so silent? And as Christian, we have to ask the same question and we have to search the Bible for its answers and we have to ask this one crucial question. How do we navigate this tension? To begin to answer that from 1 Kings 21, we'll look at three issues this morning. First, we'll examine the nature of the problem, the exact nature of it. Second, we'll define the tension more precisely. And third, we'll then consider God's motivation. What is God's motivation behind all this? So let's consider each of these. First, the nature of the problem. 
In 1 Kings 21, the nature of the problem surfaces in two ways. First, we see that Ahab wanted to purchase or trade for Naboth's property, which was adjacent to Ahab's palace. Notice that Ahab doesn't seem to want to swindle Naboth. He actually offers him a better vineyard in exchange for the one that Naboth owned, or he says he would give him a fair price in money. And so he is not attempting to swindle him. And so it raises the question for us, what is the big deal? Ahab proposed a real estate transaction. Naboth rejected it because he didn't want to sell. This is how we're prone to read the transaction. But it's critical to appreciate something about Naboth's response in verse 3. Note what he says. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. This is loaded. And we have to dig back into the Old Testament to appreciate what's being said here. Because under the Mosaic law, land belonged, the promised land belonged to one person. It belonged to God. Leviticus 25 lays out the property and how the understanding of land and our rights to it were to be understood. That the land belonged to God and it was an inheritance entrusted to the families. And so it was to be held and it was to be cherished. And there were very specific and detailed and complex laws all in the Mosaic economy governing how land could be traded and sold so that everyone in Israel would be entitled to land in order for their own prosperity and for their own thriving. And so when Naboth refuses to sell his property, he wasn't just saying, I want to hold on to what my my dad gave to me. This was rather a profound statement of faith, and it was a profound statement of obedience That no, this would break the very law of God. It would trade away the gift that God has entrusted to me. What he has given to me and my family is our inheritance, is our share in what he is doing in the world. And in making the request, Ahab reveals exactly who he is. He's indifferent to the law of God. He was inconvenienced by Naboth's convictions. He didn't appreciate Naboth's faith and his loyalty to God's covenant that he made with his people. These convictions are in the way of Ahab's pursuits. Even though it disadvantaged him, Naboth was willing to renounce his own interest to obey God. And Ahab is put off by the intensity of that pursuit of obedience. It's the first way the problem surfaces. But second, we also see something about what Ahab's designs were. We see that he wanted to turn the vineyard into a vegetable garden. Now that may sound like a convenient weekend project. Doesn't sound very offensive to us. Why why would God be upset about him going to Home Depot, buying some timber, getting some seeds and plants, and relocating things? There's actually a very subtle critique taking place here about Ahab's character. Because this term, vegetable garden, actually only appears one other place in the entire Old Testament. 
It turns up in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 10. And there, there's a comparison drawn between Egypt and its vegetable gardens and then Israel, the land of God's possession. And then, of course, throughout the Old Testament, Israel is called the vineyard of the Lord or the vine of the Lord, like in Psalm 80. And so we have a juxtaposition taking place right in front of us that what Ahab wants to do is he wants to take this vineyard belonging to Naboth and he wants to turn it into a vegetable garden. And this would be something like deep satire and humor in the ancient world expressing itself through literature and his commentary on Ahab's desires and on who he is. Because what's being said is that Ahab wants to turn the vineyard into Egypt. He wanted to be a king like the nations. This was his goal. This was his motivation. This was his driving desire. He wanted to be like the nations. He did not want to be God's peculiar inheritance. He did not want to be part of God's holy nation. He didn't want to be part of this royal priesthood. He had no interest in God's law and following it. He had no interest in being the type of people and leading the type of people God wanted. And friends, it's from these two depictions that we can appreciate the nature of the problem here, of what's happening. Ahab and Jezebel sin against Naboth, their neighbor. Ahab coveted. Jezebel then conspired with false witnesses. And she drums up charges that lead to conspiracy and execution murder. This is a violation of the second table of the law. All the commandments about protecting neighborly relations. But what's important to recognize here, that behind all this sin, all this sin against the neighbor, is a deeply theological problem. That Ahab sins against Naboth. And it's not simply that he did something horizontally wrong. But we see the source of all that horizontal wrong. Is that there's a cleavage, a break, a fracture in the vertical relationship with God. And friends, all violations of the second table of the law always come because the first table of the law has been shattered. And this is the source of human injustice. That injustice flourishes when human beings are out of accord with the living and true God. When we don't know what it is to be redeemed by him. That he is the one who brought us up out of Egypt. Who brought us out of our own bondage through his son Jesus. Made us his own. Calls us his own people. And then what it is in gratitude to respond to that grace. When that is not prized and treasured. When it's been forgotten. And we've been willing to transfer our worship to another God. Injustice is quick to follow. And friends, this is the precise nature of the problem. That injustice flows from a people with a fractured relationship with God. And as we work through the passage... We also see a sharper definition of the tension that takes place here in 1 Kings 21. It's important to place this tension in the context of the broader narrative, especially from Elijah's perspective. Elijah witnesses the power and the mercy of God on Mount 
Carmel. He sees there in 1 Kings 18 as fire falls from the heaven and receives and consumes the sacrifice. It was to display that the Lord, the God of Israel, is the true and living God. But of course, it was also the means for Israel to be reconciled to God as the sacrificial victim is consumed there as a burnt offering and atonement. But then in the following chapter, Elijah sinks into despair. And he sinks into despair because Ahab and Jezebel continued on in all of their idolatrous ways. Jezebel is furious because Ahab has been vindic- or excuse me, because Elijah has been vindicated. He has slaughtered the prophets of Baal, and so she threatens his life. Elijah retreats into the wilderness where he indulges in this fantastic moment of self-pity. It is enough, Lord. Take away my life now. In other words, I don't like the way you're doing things. I'd rather die. He's taken to Mount Sinai where God reveals himself. First, there was a great wind, but we learned last week that the Lord was not in it. Then there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in it. There was fire, but the Lord was not in it either. And then there was a low whisper in which Elijah hears the voice of God. And then in 1 Kings 19, in verses 13 through 18, the message is clear what the low whisper is. God was telling Elijah that he was not going to bring about his judgment through a great wind. It was not going to be through an earthquake. It was not going to be through a fire. There was not going to be this massive demonstration of judgment. But rather there was going to be a low whisper. That there was going to be a subtle and slow political process in which God worked out his justice in his own wisdom. And friends, this is the tension. This is the precise definition of the tension that we experience in 1 Kings 21. God announces his judgment against Ahab. If you follow in verses 15 and 18, you see it, that there will be a process in which Ahab and his house is brought into judgment. But we see in chapters 20 and 21 that it's not immediate. Ahab continues to enjoy success, and he also continues to do evil. He carries on. There is a delay in God's judgment. And friends, the reality is that we inhabit that same kind of world in which we live between a judgment that has been pronounced, in which God promises to right all the wrongs. He promises to bring all the wrongs and all the evil into judgment. He promises to renew the world and make it right. This is his promise. And his promise is also that all who look to Jesus will find refuge in the midst of all of that judgment. And in that judgment, there will be salvation. And he also promises, or we also see, that there are ongoing injustices in this world. We live in a world in which wrong seems to triumph over right. 
And so we have a promise from God that right will triumph over wrong, and yet we live in a world and we look upon a world where it seems that wrong triumphs over right. Our Lord Jesus tells us that the day is coming, the judgment will be a day of salvation, that it's been announced. And friends, this points us to the deep challenge of the Christian life, the tension that we are plunged into because the judgment is pronounced, but yet the judgment has been delayed. The challenge is is one of faith, holding fast to the reality that that judgment will come and that judgment will be purifying, that the world will be set free from all of its decay, from all the dross will be burned off, that God's mercy will flood and fill the world and remove all that doesn't belong. And the challenge for us is to believe and to trust. But yet in the midst of all the weariness, in the midst of all the fatigue, in the midst of all the evil, we, like Elijah, we lose sight and it just simply becomes hard. Several years ago, I sat down for coffee with a young man who was actively deconstructing his Christian faith. He was questioning everything. Nothing was held sacred. But in particular, he was convinced that there was no reason to believe that God was going to right the wrongs of the world. He asked a fairly penetrating question. He just looked at me and he said, is that what you see in the world? When you look out, Chuck, Do you see that God is righting the wrongs? Questions, of course, were coming out of his own deep hurts and disappointments. But the answer is no. It's easy to answer. The answer is no. No, God is not righting all the wrongs right now. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't see. Doesn't mean that God doesn't know. Doesn't mean that God doesn't count doesn't mean that God doesn't have a purpose. doesn't mean that God is blind or impotent, that God doesn't care. And he asked, but why? Why can you be certain? And friends, the reason for Christian confidence in the face of these tremendously intense questions, does God care? God doesn't seem to see. God doesn't seem to know the reason for Christian confidence. The reason that we believe that God rights the wrongs. All this rooted in one event. Because there was an innocent man who was charged, falsely accused. He was arraigned and condemned. He was stripped and beaten. He was executed in harsh style, publicly humiliated. But God vindicated him. He was raised from the dead. And as Peter tells us, death couldn't hold him. Death couldn't hold him because he was innocent. There was no true charge. There was a charge in the human court. But the human court was faulty and frail and weak. It was built upon lies. But God vindicates Jesus. And friends, this is the reason that Christians hope in a world made right that there was one who went under the pile of stones, who was innocent, who has been raised and has been made right, raised from the dead, and he promises to return. Friends, that's the Christian hope. 
that God has brought all of the evil of our world and all the injustice of that world into judgment on that day, poured out upon Jesus. And because he is up from the dead, we hold fast to him. It's the one hope there is out of all the mess, out of all the trash, out of all the tragedy, out of all the sadness. This is the one hope. And finally, we also must consider God's motivation. This will be difficult for us. Ahab is truly a detestable person. He's despicable. He's passive. He goes and cries upon his bed when he can't get a piece of property. It's a worldly man, what is presented to us. Jezebel, his wife, swoops in, conspires, murders so her covetous husband could have what he wanted, so he could have his fill. And then God delays his judgment on Ahab. Just when you're wanting God to swoop in, there's another delay. If you follow into verses 27 through 29, Elijah comes and meets Ahab, tells him of the judgment that will be visited on his house. And then we hear this recorded. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? This man who called Elijah his troubler, this man who persecuted Elijah, God is now showing mercy to. God is saying, have you seen how he's turned? Have you seen his repentance? And friends, we don't know the exact state of Ahab's heart. We're told once again that he was the most wicked king in all of Israel. But what we do see in all this, while we don't know his heart, what we do know is God's motivation for the delay. And it's what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. That it's the forbearance, it's the kindness, it's the patience of God that leads us to repentance. And friends, this is the reason for all the delay. Why God is willing to seemingly sit idle as injustice happens. He's wanting his church, he's wanting the world to repent, to turn. And we have to see in this that his silence, that his silence is not indifference. And that his silence is not impotence. It's not that he can't do anything about it. And his silence is not passivity. He's not like Ahab, crying on his bed. God's silence, friends, is patience. And it is the challenge of faith in the midst of a world filled with injustice, filled with wrongs, filled with the powerful and the weak, and the asymmetries of power and how it all works out, in which God calls us to entrust ourselves to him amidst all the delay. Because there has been a pronouncement of judgment. 
And for those who don't look to our Lord Jesus, the judgment will not fall upon Jesus. It will fall upon them. But for those who look to him in faith, all of our judgment has fallen upon the head of another. And as God works out all these things in the history of the world, he calls us to trust him. To trust him in his grace, to trust him in his mercy, to trust him in his salvation, and to trust him in his judgment. That he does all things right and he does all things well. And he doesn't mess it up. And so friends, our call in the light of tremendous, the tremendously deep and difficult human problem that is the fountain of all of this injustice in which we sin against our neighbor. All of it flowing from the fact that we have a broken relationship with God. As we see all of that, we're called to trust God in the midst of all that tension, all that we're plunged into, as we have a judgment announced, and as we wait on his timing. Our challenge is to wait, confident that God will do it all right, that he's more qualified to serve in that position than we are, that he'll do it better than we could ever do it, that he'll exercise grace and judgment just as he has in the cross of his son, and he'll do so with perfect wisdom. And so let's trust him. But yes, the great authors of the last century, they wrote and they wrote. They sought answers. They attempted to penetrate into the divine wisdom. But friends, the answer to all of the tension in the delay of God's judgment and why the wrong continues to flourish, this is the patience and it's the wisdom of God. And the God who does all things right will answer finally. Let's pray. Father, this morning we grieve the deep state of sin that afflicts our world. Our world reels with injustice. There is war, there is violence. There are cries and pains that surround your globe even today. And God, you have announced your judgment upon all of our sin. And you have delayed that judgment in your great patience. And so, God, we pray that that patience would induce us to turn. That we find afresh your mercy and your grace that is ours in Jesus. And so will all the nations turn. And will you help us to resolve all of these tensions that we can experience. As you seem so silent in the face of so much that is wrong. Give us confidence that you will right it all. Because of what you've done in your son Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Please stand.